This is Mike Wong. Today is Thursday, April 18th, the day that Season 2 comes to an end for Star Trek Discovery. I just watched Such Sweet Sorrow Part 1 to prime myself for the new episode. It's online. I've clicked on it, but I haven't started it yet. I have my bingo sheet out in front of me. I have popcorn made. I am ready for this to happen. Oh, speaking of bingo... I am very close. There are multiple ways that I could get bingo. If I see Starfleet-issued pajamas, I will get bingo. Don't think that one's going to happen, though, because I don't know why anybody would wear pajamas to a battle. Maybe, like, in one of the aftermath scenes when they're recovering. If somebody gets promoted, oh my god, Pike nearly promoted somebody to captain last episode, and I was just itching to cross that one off, but nope. If... A red shirt gets killed. I'm actually giving that a pretty high probability because they're about to go into battle. I think I will see at least one red shirt get killed on the Enterprise today. Another way that I can get bingo is if the Borg are referenced. If control turns out to be the Borg, which I hypothesize is the case, I will get bingo. There are some more complicated scenarios. If Cornrell reunite, that's Laurel and Admiral Cornwell, if they meet. Oh, wouldn't it be great if the Klingons dropped in this episode? That would be cool. If that happens, and something that is only from the Kelvin timeline is mentioned, and there's a cameo from a previous Star Trek actor not playing their previous part, and the song Persistence is played, then I will get bingo. <laughs> that is like the most convoluted route. Um, I think it's time to find out if I will get Disco Bingo. Let's start this thing up. Hey, 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 you're listening to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong, and today it's going to be all about recapping the second season of Star Trek Discovery. Now, as those of you who have been following this podcast know in great detail, I've been playing Star Trek Discovery Bingo with my two friends, Dr. Peter Gao and Dr. James T. Keen, both of whom are planetary scientists. James is a postdoc at Caltech, and Peter is a postdoc at UC Berkeley. They're also huge Star Trek fans and frequent guests on this podcast. So chances are you've heard their voices before. Okay. Hi, everybody. It's Peter Gao with another postcard. Hi, I'm James Keen. I'm a postdoc at Caltech, and I study planetary geophysics. Today, I'm here to answer a couple of questions posed by your host, Mike Wong, regarding Star Trek Discovery Bingo, our season-long bingo event for Star Trek Discovery, as well as a couple of things uh, about Discovery, the show itself. Once season two came to a close, I sent James and Peter a request for a Strange New Worlds postcard. I gave them five prompts, and they sent me audio files responding to those questions. So here are the questions. Number one was for them to summarize their bingo sheet. Did any of them get bingo? 
Number two is to talk about the things that they checked off that they are most proud of or excited about or surprised that they got. Three was what is one thing that they didn't check off, assuming that they didn't check everything off, that they really wish would have happened. Now, number four was not related to bingo at all. It was what was your favorite scientific theme or science-related event or sciencey name drop from season two. And finally, I asked them in the fifth question, was there anything else that you just needed to say about the finale? So let's hear James and Peter's recaps of season two through these five prompts. And then on the other side of that, I will come back and answer those prompts myself and we'll see who won bingo. Okay, so here we go. There are five questions. Number one is summarize your bingo sheet. Did you get bingo? If not, how close were you? What fraction of the board did you cover? That's that's several questions, Mike. Uh, but uh, okay, let's do it. So I did not get a complete bingo. I was very close. I was one away from bingo. So close. I did get a lot of squares checked. I definitely crossed out more things than I thought I would. About 12 out of the 25 or so, so about 50%. Overall, let, let's see, I got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 out of 25, I guess, or 24, since the middle is a free space. It's Spock. Fascinating. I guess I'll tell you what I actually got. So uh, someone is killed by exposure to space. That's uh, Lieutenant Mansplainer in the opening. Young Spock appears, appears multiple times. Flashback to Burnham's childhood on Vulcan. That basically happens right away. A Starfleet computer says working. This was a surprise. It just popped up once, I think, in the entire season uh, when uh, Tilly was asking about her dead friend. Um, let's see what else. The Red Angels are related to Section 31, which they are. Um, Tachyons was mentioned once by a dearly departed Admiral Cornwall. Spock shaves the beard at the last moment. Spock smashes something. That was the 3D chess. The Red Angel uh, are good guys. Yep, it's uh, Burnham and her mom, so definitely. Someone says the needs of the many, dot, dot, dot. Okay, so no one actually said the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one, but uh, I think it was Amanda who said the needs of the many. So it still counts. And finally, we learn number one's real name. And this, I only found out about this afterwards reading articles, but uh, they apparently used her um, literature name, Una, somewhere in the last episode. Yeah, there were actually a couple of references to the novels or the so-called Trek-lit universe. Learning Una's name was one of them. Another was the way that the new, flashy, colorful uniforms of the Enterprise crew was handled. And another was control. As far as I know, control was actually a concept that author David Mack came up with for one of his 24th century novels involving Section 31. So as an avid reader of the Star Trek litverse, I am very pleased with the amount of back and forth between the writers of the show and the writers of the novels, and I just hope it continues to grow stronger and stronger. So, number two, what is the one thing you checked out that you are most proud of, excited about, or surprised by? Okay, so... <laughs> 
<laughs> so <laughs> actually, I I had the Red Angel. Uh, are good guys. The Red Angels are related to Section Thirty One, and the Red Angels are bad guys. So I was, I was gonna get one of these. Um, so I was uh, happy to get even, even two out of the the three. You know, I wasn't surprised by really any of these. I expected some of them or most of them to happen. I guess Spock smashes something. That was fun. <laughs> I'm glad I got to cross that off. Um, oh, this, a Starfleet computer says working. I, I feel like that's probably. That was gonna happen, but again, it's one of the. It, it only happened once, and so it was almost as if the show was helping me. I think the square I was most excited to fill in was the square saying that some real planetary or astronomy data set is shown on screen. And the reason I was most excited for that one was both I'm a real planetary scientist, so I like seeing data and scientific content shown on tv but also this happened basically at second one of season two in the very first episode brother it opened with a montage of nasa images and video from the cassini mission and so it was really beautiful and i think mike and peter and all the people who have chimed in on strange new worlds would agree that that was a very moving sequence. And so for that reason, I was the most proud or excited to check off that one. Now here we're going to skip ahead to question four, because that square that James was most pleased to cross off also was Peter's favorite sciencey moment from season two. Number four, what was your favorite scientific theme, science-related event, or sciencey name drop from season two? Well, it has to be just from the very beginning of the season when they showed archival footage from Cassini. I never expected something like this to happen. And and just right away, that was amazing. You know, since the last Star Trek series, Enterprise, uh, ended in 2005, the space exploration field, at least in our field, planetary science, has just exploded. We've learned so much more about the Saturn system from Cassini, the Pluto system from New Horizons, lots and lots of things about Mars, of course, and so much exoplanets. And I was hoping that they would include some of this in Star Trek Discovery. There's so much to mine from, but never, never like this, uh, using it as essentially a work of art for Michael Burnham's speech. And that was perfect. I mean, space is amazing. There's a lot of math in it. There's a lot of physics in it. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of art in it as well. And I'm glad they used it in that way. Yeah, we just can't stop talking about those Cassini images on Strange New Worlds. And I just have the feeling that we are going to keep coming back over and over and over again to this scene. It is going to be one of the golden moments in all of Star Trek, I think, especially amongst all of the scientists who watch Star Trek. This will be a moment that we will remember for a very long time. And it's so great because Star Trek has gone so far in terms of inspiring the real-life people who send these missions out into space, so it's great to see the cycle close in on itself, to come full circle and see these real-life missions mentioned and referenced 
in Star Trek, that the people in our future will remember us, who are inspired by the people that we watch on television from the future, who were inspired by us, who were... Wait, this is kind of becoming a temporal paradox. I should just shut up and let James continue recapping his bingo sheet. I checked off a number of other boxes with things ranging from time travel, which was obviously going to get checked off for this season, Culver coming back to life. One of the ones that I checked off that I'm kind of surprised how long it took to get checked off was the box that I wrote, someone gets vaporized. So the reason that I'm surprised that this one got checked off as late as it did is I didn't get to check that box until Points of Light, which is the episode set on Kronos and it's a very Klingon-centric one. And it's only because Mir Giorgio shows up and starts vaporizing people that I get to check that box. There is a lot less phaser violence in this season compared to the first season. In fact, I think outside of that scene at the end of that episode where Giorgio is beaming down and vaporizing everyone, there are very few phasers set to vaporize. In fact, very few phaser fights in general in this season compared to the first season. The first season, especially those Mirror Universe episodes, there are people getting vaporized left and right. And I think that that is sort of a symptom of the, this new tone that they have season two. It's much, I, I want to say lighter than the season one war arc. It is still very serious. Like There's a lot at stake in season two, but it's not as dark in that sort of military violent sense that we saw in season one. So number three, what is one thing you didn't check out that you really wish would have happened? Well, I wish a Starfleet officer got sent to the brig uh, because then I would have had bingo. And we almost, almost got it. So Ash Tyler, who was not Starfleet, of course, got sent to his room, uh, which is not the brig, of course. So, uh, you know, it, the, 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 the idea was there. The meaning was there. But uh, it, it wasn't exactly it was exactly right. There is a, a box I was actually really surprised I did not get to check. And that was, quote, a named Federation starship is destroyed on screen. And this again goes back to comparing it to season one, where there's a Federation ship destroyed well, almost in every third episode or something like that. The first battle of the binary stars, a bunch of things get destroyed. A, a few ships get destroyed later down the line. In this season... No named starships get destroyed on screen. The USS Hiawatha, which is the spacecraft we find Tignataro on in the, in the first episode, is destroyed or crash lands off screen. No other Federation ships are destroyed. The only Federation-related ships that are destroyed or damaged are the Section 31 ships, and they are not named, which was an important stipulation in my bingo sheet. The rest of this is more things I kind of wanted to happen or got an idea. Like, Denise Reno becomes Discovery's chief engineer. Okay, well, I still don't know what her role is. Uh, but I actually was just hanging out doing engineering things without being an engineer. Oh, another one that I was really surprised that didn't get checked, especially in the last episode, was I had a box with Spock cries. I thought he was going to cry in that last episode, especially as Michael and Spock were parting him in the shuttlecraft, she in the Red Angel suit. I was, I was looking for a tear just to color it off. 
Captain Pike has to communicate with the series of beeps. We were so close. So close. We had him in the chair. We had him in the chair. All we had to do was beep once, and I could have gotten this. And, oh, okay, I still, still wouldn't have gotten uh, Bingo because uh, I still needed Tilly snores. But, you know, it, it was close. It, it, was, it was close. I had two on here that I wanted to get checked off, and I really thought that they would be. And that was in reference to characters from the cage. So I had both Yeoman Colt appearing or being referenced, and also Dr. Boyce appearing and being referenced. And neither were referenced or appeared on the show. Apparently, someone was cast as Yeoman Colt, but was not identified on screen, so it doesn't count. I also had things like Cybok is referenced. I was hoping that they would throw in a Cybok reference, given the amount of Spock, Sarek, family drama they get into in this season. But then I, there's also the classic, quote, the Tardigrade Returns box, which I wanted just to, to piss off Mike, because the Tardigrade was his favorite character from season one, or at least his favorite creature from season one. Yep, you know it, James. That Tardigrade better come back in season three. Okay, let's jump on ahead to the part where James now gets to talk about his favorite sciency aspects of Star Trek Discovery, season two. Okay, this randomly came to mind as favorite science nerd drop in season two. And this is a small one, but I know it's one Mike will like. In the episode, The Red Angel, where they go to this cold planet, Asoph 4, where apparently it's inhospitable to life outside of the Starfleet facilities on the surface. And they're going to go down there. They're going to put Michael in a situation where she's going to be exposed to the atmosphere and will die, which will force the Red Angel to appear to save her because they believe it is Michael is the Red Angel. The planet that they're on, I believe, is based on Mars. They don't actually show a Mars-like planet when they're in orbit. But on the surface, they talk about how it has a carbon monoxide atmosphere, has, I think, cold temperatures. I don't recall if they were cold or just wildly fluctuating temperatures but the thing that will kill her is the combination of the carbon monoxide atmosphere and perchlorate dust quote so perchlorates are a type of salt that you can find on earth in some places they're chemically produced but you also find them on the surface of mars they were something that i believe was discovered by the phoenix lander and they're important because they're actually toxic so it's something that if we ever send humans to the surface of Mars, they're going to have to actually deal with perchlorates and making sure that it doesn't infect their drinking water or something. So it's an actually toxic substance that we've found on another planet. And here it's being used sort of in an extreme sense where it's like literally like acting like some sort of acid and like eating away at her skin when the atmosphere touches her. May not be realistic, but it was still an exciting science drop in an episode i actually made a note of perchlorate as well in my list of things to cover in the future on strange new worlds i actually had a moment during that episode because ethan peck doesn't actually say the word perchlorate he says percolate and i had to stop the episode and i usually don't do this i usually don't stop the episode on my first watch through, I like to just watch it as if I were in a movie theater with no control whatsoever and just react in real time. But I had to stop the episode because I was like, did he say 
perchlorate? I didn't hear that, but I really want him to have said perchlorate because that would have totally made sense. And so I stopped the episode, I put on the subtitles, and I played that bit again, and indeed the subtitles say perchlorate, but Ethan Peck pronounces it percolate, but it is perchlorate, and uh, and I was real pleased by that. So James just knows me so well. There were, I think, a lot of, lot of moments that kind of blew me away with just how much in-depth they went with the science. Um, not necessarily correct, but they went there. They mentioned words. There's two things from the finale that's, that stuck out. Uh, one was Michael's journey through the wormhole. There were a lot of articles mentioned later that there were parts of Interstellar. There were, it looked like 2001. But what really struck me was all those sparks flying at Michael Burnham. I don't know if it was intentional. That was definitely related to essentially what happened in Interstellar when Matthew McConaughey went into the black hole and his ship was pelted by all these sparks, right? And what was that about? Well, that is something that is predicted to happen near the event horizon of the black hole, something that's actually permitted and expected from physics. So I'm really glad that they actually took that uh, into account. Another thing from the, uh, the finale was the row of solar panels, that was on the Golden Gate. Uh, that was that was pretty fun. I don't think, I mean, would they be using solar panels at that time? And would they essentially look like solar panels today? Probably not. But I'm glad that uh, they put something there that is pretty relevant to uh, modern day. Let's see. Well, I'm sure there are plenty more science things to talk about, but I'll have to rewatch the season, which is what I want to do anyway. Okay, so last question, number five, anything else you just need to say about the finale? Okay, well. The finale was fantastic. I loved it. It was really fun to watch. It was really engaging. I thought it was the best episode of the series, honestly. Uh, I was on the edge of my seat the whole time. It was just a tour de force. And in fact, if you combine it with the previous part, right, the two-parter, then I would say it has the perfect balance of personal moments between the characters and just action. And honestly, it's it's probably some of the best space battle action I've ever seen in the entire franchise. The special effects in particular were amazing. But the artistic direction of the battle was amazing. I mean, one of the complaints I've seen around, um, at least earlier treks, is that Star Trek kind of went from this submarine action when it comes to space battles to sort of fighter jets, even though you were still dealing with you know, 200, 300 meters length uh, starships. Well, here, the Discovery and the Enterprise were slow, lumbering giants, okay? They kind of turned a little bit, listed to one side, and glided over the other. And that just felt more realistic, and that put more weight into these ships. It was cool to see all the little shuttlecraft flying about, all sorts of fun things. The D7 up here, or multiple D7s, and the Klingon Cleave ship, which... We saw in the opener for season one, and at the time it was kind of weird, like the special effects were obviously very different then than they are now, but I was never really fond of the ship in, in that episode. But here it was actually, it was a surprise to see it happen, because it hadn't been teased in the trailers. That's probably it, is in the lead up to the first season, we had seen that some cloaked thing was hitting a Federation starship in the opening for season one here we had no teaser of that ahead of time so 
the cleave ship just appears out of nowhere, blows up a bunch of Section 31 ships, which I thought was really cool. Action aside, there were a lot of very, very emotional moments. A lot of really good emotional moments, especially for Spock and Michael. Uh, I think I teared up when uh, Michael said goodbye to Spock. It's so great that we can have these serialized seasons and have such massive payoffs at the end. But probably my favorite bit from the season two finale was as the discovery was going in to the wormhole to the future, following Michael, they reused the Star Trek, the motion picture visual effect for the wormhole and how it affected everyone on the ship. You have all these like streaming lights, this like wavy lights. It's exactly the same visual effect that they used for the wormhole sequence in the motion picture. And that was just perfect. I like smiled so hard <laughs> when they used that and they were cutting to all the different people. And in particular, as they're cutting between all the people on the bridge, they cut to Oashegun, who's in this like pose looking off to one direction, which very much reminded me of a pose that like Ilea does either in that scene or maybe when in when the Vedra probe like appears on the bridge where she's like looking off to the side. And the fact that the both actresses have either shaved or partially shaved heads and just the way that they looked was another visual reference to the motion picture that at least I picked up on. Maybe it was unintentional, but I just love that whole sequence. And of course, now they're off to the future. I was hoping, I was hoping, uh, well, hoping two things. First of all, that they would show the future. Some sort of teaser about what Discovery ended up at when they jumped into the future. I guess I'll just have to live with that mystery at least for a couple, several more months until we get more information. And my second hope was that something's gonna go wrong and their calculations were gonna be off and they were gonna travel to the 24th century or something. And they were gonna get there and then a, a ship is gonna hail them and there sits old uh, Jonathan Frake saying, who the hell are you? Uh, I mean, he, he's directed, he's there, okay? Just put him in uniform and sit him at a chair, just do it, come on. But they didn't. So now it's a complete mystery what's gonna happen. Uh, we know from interviews that they are in fact going to 950 years into the future. So that is not part of the guesswork anymore. But you know, there's also the downside, which is how do you imagine technology and people and alien races so far into the future, right? I mean, it's they, it's going to take some a lot of thinking and probably talking to some futurists or something to figure out, well, how do you read things now? Do you even read things? Is it just downloading into your brain? Now, here, here, Captain, I, I have uh, the report. Okay, here, just stick it to my temple. And, and oh, okay, I, I suddenly understand everything. Thank you. <laughs> is it going to be like that? Uh, what's space travel even going to be like? So I'm very excited for what's about to happen. The point, of course, is that we got to know these characters fairly well in the last two seasons, and now we get to see them deal with something completely different. So it's, it's not like the series is resetting itself because the characters are the same. They went through the same things. But it, it is sort of resetting itself in, I think, the most exciting way. So very excited. So excited for the future of Star Trek Discovery and the Star Trek franchise in general. Can't wait to see more. I believe we're due for another short trek in the coming months. And then the Picard show is in production here in LA. So hopefully we'll start getting more details out of that pretty soon. And all these animated shows and so much is coming. So I'm very excited. And with that, I'll sign off. From a really, really long postcard. 
my my postcards are not they're not really postcards they're pretty long letters so i'll stop it here live long and prosper wow that was awesome Thank you once again to Dr. Peter Gao and Dr. James T. Keen for their thoughts, recollections, and feelings about the second season of Star Trek Discovery. It was an absolute pleasure to play bingo with you guys. Now it's time to go see how I did. Wait, what? Wait. What? No. Um. Starfleet pajamas. No Starfleet pajamas. Nobody got promoted. I didn't clearly see a red shirt getting killed, and apparently control is not the board. So, I literally had four, four in a rows going into the last episode and none of it none of it came true oh my god oh man what is are we gonna even see discovery next season is this gonna be a pike show is it gonna be an enterprise show what what just happened oh my god oh Star Trek. And I guess that's why they called this episode Such Sweet Sorrow. I mean, come on. I was so close. Ugh. So close. My bingo sheet just stares at me, begging me to complete it. But I guess not. Okay, so let let me go through and quickly answer my own questions. So summarize your bingo sheet. I had 13 total crossed off and uh, four, four in a rows and no bingo. Still, still stings me to say that. <laughs> what gets me even more, actually, is that I owe Elise Cuts. And Daesun Oka things because I made season two bets with them and lost both of them. So that just adds insult to injury. I think it's got to tie in somehow. And figuring that out is so difficult. My gut feeling is that this has nothing to do with season two. But if they do, if they do resolve or at least uh, mention in a big way the happenings of this episode a thousand years in the future uh, and explain it in some way during season two maybe i'll buy you a starship or something like that okay let's I, take let's take bets michael do you want to take a bet okay if control is the borg if control is the borg i give you a full course of sushi okay if it's not then i'll buy you sushi okay sounds good um number two what is the one thing that you checked off that you are most proud of, excited, or surprised by? I probably have to go with... Someone has to reverse the polarity of something. Honestly, like, it's such a trope, and they snuck it in in a really brilliant way, uh, where the sphere, whose data everybody wants, reversed the polarity of its stasis field to repel the discovery and save the ship from danger. 
and I have no idea what it means to reverse the polarity of a stasis field, but I feel like that's the perfect use of <laughs> reversing the polarity of something when you have no idea what it means, but it fixes everything. So yeah, that's my favorite one. Number three, what is one thing that I didn't check off that I really wish would have happened? Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> I mean, the Borg? <laughs> that would have been... Because, uh, I mean, now I owe Sun Sushi. Number four. My favorite scientific theme, science-related event, or science-y name drop from season two. Geez, I, I guess it's those Cassini images. I mean, nothing tops that. But let me sort of make a little bit of a critique, actually, uh, of of the plot of Star Trek Discovery. So towards the end of the season, in the last few episodes, the thing that they decide to do to keep the sphere data out of Control's hands is to send Discovery, which contains the sphere data, into the future, as far as they can into the future. And they need to do all of this convoluted stuff. They need to go get a time crystal. They need to build a red angel suit. And they need to fly Michael Burnham and create a wormhole. And Discovery needs to follow her. And it's this very complicated, very difficult to achieve scheme. But I would like to remind everybody that time travel is quite easy to do in one direction. Time travel into the future is possible. Time travel into the past is where the fiction meets science to create science fiction. But traveling into the future is pure science. Einstein gave this to us when he developed his theories of relativity. In order to travel into the future very, very fast relative to everybody else's clocks, you just need to go very, very close to the speed of light. Or you need to go into a deep gravitational well, like a black hole. And black holes are common astrophysical phenomena. Starfleet ships have the capability of going close to the speed of light. And before you start waving your hands and saying, whoa, 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 in Star Trek, you can travel faster than the speed of light and not have any kind of crazy relativistic time dilation. Actually, time dilation has been thought about from a technical standpoint in the modes of propulsion that the Star Trek creators have embedded in the Star Trek universe. So, for instance, warp drive takes you faster than the speed of light, but it does so by creating a warp bubble around the ship. And this is the terminology that is used across all of Star Trek, a warp bubble, such that you are expanding and contracting space-time at a distance away from the ship, but the fabric of space-time that the ship exists in is always that normal, unwarped space-time. So there's no general relativistic time dilation. Okay, so that's motive propulsion one. Motive propulsion two is impulse engines. Impulse engines accelerates you across the fabric of space. So you're not bending space or anything like that. You're just moving through space. But if you look in the Star Trek encyclopedia, full impulse is only 0.25c, or one quarter the speed of light. Now, why is that? You'd think that full impulse would be like as fast as you could go through space without breaching the cosmic speed limit, which is the speed of light. So it should be like 0.9c. 
But no, full impulse is only one quarter C, and that is probably because you don't want to have too much time dilation from a special relativistic point of view. So I'm getting into the weeds a little bit, but it just seems to me that a simpler way to put discovery into the future is to say, to hell with stopping full impulse at 0.25c, let's keep accelerating discovery to 0.99999c, and that should send us into the future, or let's just go find your local neighborhood black hole and enter its gravitational well. Of course, you could think of counter reasons why both of those wouldn't work. Perhaps the sphere data would not like to go into the gravitational well of a black hole and prevent discovery from doing that. And perhaps the crew dismisses the idea of accelerating the ship through normal space using impulse engines to some large fraction of the speed of light because that ship could perhaps still get intercepted by control slash section 31 forces. One other tidbit from a plot hole perspective is why did killing nanoprobe-infested Captain Leland shut down control? After all, killing nanoprobe-infested Gant didn't shut down control. You'd think that because control is an AI, it would have backups of itself or be distributed amongst many different processing machines, so it doesn't really make sense that killing Leland would shut down control. Unless Leland was essentially the analog of the Borg Queen to Control's forces. So I'm still holding out hope that somehow Control is the Borg. Alright, you're probably sick of hearing that theory from me. Thank you for listening to Strange New Worlds. There's so much to continue talking about, even though Discovery has paused for the moment. We've got perchlorates, we've got tardigrades, we've got wormholes. All of those deserve their own episode of Strange New Worlds, and I'm excited for the opportunity to bring those science stories to you and enhance your Star Trek experience by doing so. Let's go boldly into the future, everyone. And I'll see you out there. The fact that we, none of us got bingo for Star Trek Discovery Season 2 makes me think we need to be a little bit easier on ourselves for Season 3. I'm also thinking maybe we should do like a, instead of a full-on bingo, maybe like a Star Trek Discovery Season 3 tic-tac-toe for the, the trailers that are going to come. Because right now we know nothing about what's going to be happening in Season 3 other than presumably that it's going to be in the 31st or 32nd century. It could be fun. We'll still probably lose. <laughs>